Let's pray. Father, I can't think of a better prayer than that song. As we approach your word, I just want to acknowledge that it is our firm foundation. Um, it's the place where we can go when we don't know what's going on. We can find hope and assurance. We can find peace. Father, as, as we look at your word today, as always, fill our hearts with the knowledge of who you are. Open our minds and our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, to see your divine plan of redemption. Lord, allow us to humble ourselves, understanding that we are but mere creatures. And we, as mere creatures, sinners as we are, because of your Son, get to approach the throne, get to spend time hearing from you, get to have a relationship with you. Father, as we look at your word, just be with us now. In your name, amen. I encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John. We are finishing up our prologue today. We are going to be in uh, John 15 through 18. And once the prologue is done, I promise you we're going to pick up speed, look at some uh, larger sections. But we have a couple of verses to look at this morning. We're going to look at 15 to 18. As we near the end of the prologue, or as we finish out the prologue, John wants to leave no question in our mind of who Jesus is. That's really what he's been doing for the last, well, for this first 18 verses, is he wants to set the readers up of this man that we're going to talk about, this friend that I got to walk the earth with, this person that you know as Christ Jesus. He is unlike any other person. He is the Son of God. And as we end the, as we are ending the prologue today in this section, what we're going to see is the cosmological and the historical strands of the redemptive story uh, collide in the person of Jesus. We're going to see that what was set out before the foundation of the world and who came in flesh is in, in this story of redemption is, is complete in the person of Christ. The gospel writer John when he goes to end the prologue, he ends by talking about John the Baptist. So I'm going to be using two Johns here. One's, I'm going to talk about John the Baptist some, and hopefully I'm not going to um, uh, uh, press, not what, I, I can't even think of the right word. Man, this is not starting well this morning. I don't want to confuse you. That's the word with the gospel writer of John. But he ends the prologue by looking at John the Baptist. But what if you notice where he picks up in verse 19, the beginning of the narrative of the gospel, he also looks at the gospel of, or at the John the Baptist. So he's going to end this prologue with John. He's going to start the narrative with John, but he's going to use John, and John is going to focus in on two different emphases. Today, John's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony, is going to be used to show us the theological, the theological continuity that we have throughout the Old Testament coming into the New. Next week, what we're going to see is that John's testimony is going to be used to show us that the biblical prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament. So, that didn't confuse you enough. Let's get into it. I want to read John 15, or John 1, 15 through 18. It says this, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
For the first time in this prologue, we are going to hear somebody speak in first person. The last time that John was mentioned in the prologue, that was back in verse 6, John was spoken about in third person. But here, the gospel writer is saying, you need to hear from the words of John the Baptist. And what does he say? This is he whom I said has come after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. What he is saying is this is the one. This is the person who all of the other prophets have been writing about. John holds a very special place in Scripture. He is the last Old Testament prophet. Now, I know we read about him in the New Testament, but he's the last Old Testament prophet. You see, all of the other Old Testament prophets had the same function as John. Their function was to look ahead and say, look, people, somebody is coming who is going to fulfill the promise that was set out in Genesis 3.15. The Messiah is coming. Every other prophet, that was their job. They said, somebody is coming. You can trust in that. Now, why were there multiple prophets? Because we're fickle people and we forget that. So what we can see throughout the Old Testament, Testament is all of these prophets, their job was literally to remind whomever they're writing to and who, whoever they're prophesying uh, to, to say, somebody is coming. You can trust in that. This is what Hebrews 1 was talking about. It says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in a whole bunch of ways, these prophets said, listen, somebody is coming. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 says this concerning the salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. As they were writing this, as they were proclaiming Christ, they were trying to figure out when is this guy coming? Who is this person? What's this going to look like? Verse 11, they inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. When he, predict, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. John is the last Old Testament prophet. But John gets to fill a different role. John gets to sound a little different. You see, all of the other prophets, they were looking for Jesus. John the Baptist gets to look at Jesus. He gets to come in and goes, guys, he's here. It's this one. This is the guy that we have been waiting for. Everyone else has been saying he's going to come eventually. John gets to put, place his eyes on him and as a prophet go, it's that one. Just to make sure that everyone's clear. It's, he's the one that everyone has been talking about. He's the one that, that's been prophesied about. He's the Messiah. He gets to look at Jesus. Now, as I said, at the end of the prologue, John is, is looking at the, the, the John the Baptist as being used to point out the theological connection that Jesus has with the Old Testament. This redemptive arc that we see. And if you look at his statement, it's very odd. In fact, if you were to say this statement about any other person, it makes no sense. Because look what he says. This is he whom I've said. This one. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is some very playful wording here. If I were to say that somebody who comes after me was actually before me, you would say, that's impossible. I can't follow in the footsteps of somebody who's coming after me because their footsteps haven't been created yet, so how can I follow in their footsteps? It's like me saying, I'm going to follow in my children's footsteps. That doesn't work that way. And in this time period, uh, it, history and your ancestry was everything. 
The younger did not set out to make a name for themselves. The younger did not say, I'm going to try to stand alone. Rather, the younger, their job was to carry on the lives and the, and the, and, and, and the heritage of the Father. The same is true for the disciples. The job of the disciples is not to make a new path for themselves, but was to follow in the same footsteps as their leader. So here, John is saying, I'm following in the footsteps of somebody who's come before me. How does this work? Well, it works because we're talking about the Son of God. It's a very playful statement here where he's, he's identifying the footsteps that I'm following in is not the man Jesus because he was born after me, but the Son of God, the divine footsteps that we see. You see, Jesus is not following John. John is following Jesus. He's following the footsteps of the Son of God. And honestly, this statement cannot be misunderstood, or rather, if it is misunderstood, we are going to miss the history of the Bible. We're going to miss the beauty of the Bible. Because what we can see in Scripture across all 66 books is a continuity of flow and thought, all coming back to redemption. What we can see in the Old Testament is that the Son of God, the, the Son of God who took on flesh and would be Jesus, but the Son of God, the divine side of Jesus has been working in history, and that person has finally come. When John says that he is, how does he say? He goes, he is before me. He is talking about that Jesus' theological significance. John the Baptist is pointing out the continuity that exists between the Old and the New Testament. And especially when he uses this word, fullness. The fullness has come. For a while this morning, I want to dig down into this word fullness. And I could do it in a couple of different ways. I could... For us all to understand it fully, stop the series of the Gospel of John right now and go to Hebrews and preach all the way through the book of Hebrews and then come back and go, that's what I'm meaning by fullness. I'm not going to do that, even though that would be kind of fun. We'll get to Hebrews eventually one day. But rather, this one word or phrase is calling out this portrait that we see all over the Old Testament. And if we miss this portrait, if we miss this picture, if we miss this idea that John is talking about here, we're going to misunderstand who Jesus is. Because Jesus doesn't just pop up on the scene kind of unannounced and goes, oh my goodness, where'd this guy come from? This guy has been talked about from the beginning of Scripture. So what I want to do this morning, so that we can understand who we are dealing with better, I want to remind us of who Jesus is by looking at the fullness that has come. Now I say I want to look at the portrait of the Old Testament. And I say portrait as opposed to pixel. The, the, the Bible is the picture of redemption. It is the story of redemption. It has a lot of details included in it. It's a lot of pixels, as every picture does have pixels. But what I want to do today is look at the, the grand portrait of it all. Not to say that we can't see the details in the pixels, but look at the grand portrait of it all so that we can understand the person that we are talking about. Throughout biblical history, starting in Genesis, we have seen the seed of the gospel grow and mature. 
It was planted in Genesis 3.15, Proto-Evangelion, the, the first instance of the gospel. This acorn, this, this gospel promise was planted. And what we are going to see throughout the Bible is that this acorn, the seed of promise, is going to grow into a beautiful oak tree. And so if you will allow me for a moment, and I know I've done this time and time again, but to be frank, I love it because it's the best picture that ever exists. I want to walk through and see how this seed of promise grows into the fullness who has come. Genesis 3.15, the acorn is planted. Sin has just entered the world. Adam and Eve just fell. They thought all is lost. The, the, the perfect creation is now marred because of our sin. And in our sin, in our pain, when Adam and Eve were, were thinking all is lost, God steps in and offers hope that one day someone will come and make all things new. One day someone will come and give us the remedy that we need. This gospel seed is planted. We see very quickly, though, that sin took root. It took root hard. We see in Noah, when, when Noah comes on the scene, I mean, we're talking a couple thousand years after, um, or, yeah, after the, the sin, people are so depraved, are so sinful, that the Lord says, I have to destroy this world because of sin, except for Noah and his family. And what we see in this is that God's promise to bring hope stands, but God hates sin. And so he has the flood come, as we all know. It, de it destroys everything. The earth is remade in, this, in the flood. And yet God offers a promise, a promise and a rainbow, that he will remember the everlasting covenant that was planted in 315. Then we get to Abraham, or Abram. When he comes on the scene, life goes on. People continue to grow. The earth is, uh, is filled and people multiply. And then there's Abram, a guy living in Ur, who clearly was just some no-name guy. You never picked this guy. And God comes in and goes, through you, Abram, I'm going to bless the world. And what we can see in Genesis 12, 1 and 3 is this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will dishonor you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As we see the seed of promise continuing, we now see that Abram, Abraham, the Lord is going to use this man to bring this seed of promise to life. Okay, it's going to be through you, Abraham, that this seed is going to come. It's going to be one of your descendants. Through you, all of the earth is going to be blessed. But the Lord demonstrates for us that Abraham himself is not going to bring this seed. Abraham himself is not going to be the Savior. Rather, the Lord is going to bring a Savior. Because if you look in Genesis 22, you can turn there. You see this story with Abraham and his son. Now consider when Abram was said through you, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He couldn't bear one child versus many children. And 
the Lord gives him a son well after childbearing years were over for Sarah, gives him Isaac. And then the Lord says in 22.2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Side note, the land of Moriah is right around Jerusalem. Maybe even the mountain of Calvary. But that's a side note. We, you know the story. He does it. He packs up. He takes wood. He takes the knife. He takes the fire. He takes his son. They journey to the land. They go up on the mountain. He straps down Isaac. I wonder what Isaac is thinking during this. He raises, the, he raises this knife. And in 11, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here am I. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called this place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day, on the mountain, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What we can see in this picture is that Abraham is going to be used, but he's not going to be the answer. Rather, the Lord is going to provide the answer. So this seed continues to grow when we go to Moses. It's been many, many years now. The nation of Israel has grown into a great nation. They're in Egypt. They are stuck in slavery. And a guy by the name of Moses comes on the scene because God's people cannot be stuck in slavery, in sin, and in death. And the Lord is going to use this man to redeem his people. And what does he say to Moses? He goes, says, therefore, to the people of Israel, this is Exodus 6, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the burdens of the Egyptians. The story continues. The Lord has not forgotten his promises. What was planted in the garden remains. God is still going to be faithful. This people is growing, and at all costs, God is going to be faithful to what he has said. Then, as we looked at for so many weeks, we come to the shadows of Christ in the Exodus. And I want to stop, and I want to make sure we all understand these shadows appropriately. Because I've been using this language as we, we, our last series was the Exodus. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, you can go find those sermons um, on our website or podcast stream. And as we were looking at the shadows of Christ, we said that these are the shadows of the person of Christ. But these events that took place, these events in the Old Testament that we looked at, they were actually the Son of God working. They were the shadows of the person of Christ that was going to be created when, when uh, the Son of God and be, took on flesh to become the person of Christ. But it was actually the person of God, the Son of God, working. When the manna came from heaven, it was God the Son working. When the pillar of cloud and fire stood over the tabernacle, it was actually the Son of God. When the blood was put on the doorpost, it was the Son of God who protected the people inside. When the ram was stuck in the thicket, it was the Son of God. 
It was actually the Son of God. It wasn't like Jesus just showed up on the scene and goes, huh, you haven't been acting or working or doing anything for the past thousands of years. Now you're here. Rather, the Son of God was doing these things in the Old Testament. But the portrait continues. And after the nation of Israel was freed from death and slavery, they needed a leader. They needed somebody to rule with justice and mercy. They needed somebody who could lead them in the law of God. And we can see in biblical history, there were a lot of good leaders. And some of them kept them on the straight and narrow. And some of them didn't. Good leaders from the world standards. But the problem is they all died. And then we get to David. We get to David, a good king. A king who is a you know, man after God's own heart. And the Lord tells David this. This is 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And whoever commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son and men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. You see, if you've been picking up on it, I've been, I've been focusing in on the covenants that we see throughout Scripture. And here with this covenant to David, we see, okay, the, the seed of promise is going to come from the line of David. Who is this guy going to be? But what we can see generation after generation after generation is that everyone failed. Everyone sinned. Everyone wasn't enough. And ultimately, we see the nation of Israel cast out of the land because of their idolatry and their disbelief. We see them no longer in the nation of Israel. They are in a foreign country living as as, um, as exiles once again. And yet the Lord has not forgotten his promise. And we see the last covenant of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The seed of promise that was planted in the garden, that was planted in 315, has continued to grow and is blossoming. And what we can see is the strong and complex and full picture of grace that is bursting forth. And when John says in John chapter 1, this is he who was before me, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What he's saying is this is the guy that we've been waiting for. Now, I've always had a question when it comes to just the story of the Bible. Why did it take so long? Why did it take thousands of years? Why did it take this many covenants? Why did it take this many stories? Why did it take this amount of disobedience? Why, didn't, why, why wasn't it Genesis 3.15 and let's say, let's give it a couple of chapters. Genesis 5.15 and Jesus comes on the scene. Why did Jesus have to take so long? Why did this promise take so long to finally come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ? 
And here's the answer that I'm giving it. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. I don't know. I'll ask Jesus one day. It took us thousands of years in many, many books, in many, many stories, in many, many events for us to understand the full weight of who Jesus is. Jesus, if, if he came on the scene and he tried to describe his fullness to us, we wouldn't have understood. We would have had our minds been like, what? You're, you're, you're the perfect prophet, priest, and king? What, your fulfillment of the law? You're what, you're this lamb of God? Like, we couldn't have understood it if it didn't take this long, if we didn't have all of these stories that take place in the Old Testament for us to see this is the fullness that is found in Jesus Christ. So when he says, in him, this fullness we have received, grace upon grace, what he's saying is this seed that was planted in Genesis 3.15 has grown up into this beautiful picture of grace that is Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the person that we have been waiting for has come. For from his fullness, what have we received? Grace upon grace. Grace is talked about, the word grace appears four times in the book of John, in the gospel of John. These are the last two the only time grace is used is in the prologue. And I think that's because John is trying to describe for us that what you're about to experience is grace, and now I'm going to tell you what grace looks like on the ground. But this grace upon grace is something that's called a hopox legomena. It's all, this is the only time that these three words are put together in this way. And so commentators have actually struggled. How do we translate this sucker? Because it's an odd um, wording here. So there's a couple of ways that it can be translated. Probably your Bible has it written like my Bible does, grace upon grace. What they've struggled with is, okay, what's this word anti? How do we, how, how do we describe that? You, we could say grace upon grace, the other way we could describe it is grace in addition to grace. Or we could describe it grace in place of grace. So there's this, there's this, they're contrasting two things here. There was grace and now there's grace. And we can really understand the, 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 the flow of this thing when we look at the next verse. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is been there, even before Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh, there was grace that was in the law of Moses. But now there is grace as well. There is, you know, in addition to that, there is grace. Or in place of that, there is grace. Because there is grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One of the ways that people can misunderstand the Bible is that when they see the Old Testament, they only see law. They see anger. They see duty. They see work. They see bondage. But that's not the picture of the Old Testament. Yes, there's law there. And law is a bondage because we're sinners. But the law itself is a good thing. God does not look at the law and see something that is, that is difficult or painful or wrong. When he sees law, he sees it as an act of grace. Think about this. The Lord created the entire world. All the creatures in it, the entire world. But think about the unique relationship that you and I, as those who have flesh, human beings, have with the creator of the world. 
He gave us a promise. If you follow my law perfectly, you can be with me in heaven forever. Now, to sinners, that's bondage because there's sin inside of us. I can't follow God's law perfectly for a single day, for a single hour, maybe not even for a single minute. And so now that is a sheer bondage. But to Adam and Eve, that was life. They were created perfect. It was good. They weren't sinning. But when they did sin, when they did choose to disobey, became this bondage. But that seed of promise was then quickly planted. Okay, I'm going to send somebody who is going to once again fulfill the law, or not once again, finally fulfill the law, and you can once again live in a right relationship with me. And so when he says grace upon grace, what he's really looking at is, listen, the Old Testament was gracious. The fact that you could have a relationship with God was gracious. But now that the Son of God has come, That grace is far more than you can ever imagine and ever describe because grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There was grace in the Old Testament. I would say there's amazing grace in the New Testament that I don't have to earn it. I don't have to do it. I just simply have to trust that Christ's life was enough. Here's how Martin Luther describes this statement of grace and truth. He says it this way. This spring of grace and truth is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw, but remains an infinite fountain of all grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up 10 worlds, just as 100,000 candles might be lit from one light and not detract from it, just as you, just as one learned man is able to make a thousand others learned, the more he gives, the more he has. So is Christ, our Lord, the infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the whole world all angels, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over, full of grace. The Son of God is sufficient. Why? Because he is the fullness of all that we have seen before in the Old Testament and and the fullness of all of who God is. Christ was the promised seed. The seed that was planted has matured into this beautiful oak tree that's named Christ. What was talked about in the Old Testament is exactly what's going to be talked about in the New Testament. The portrait that lays over the entire Bible is redemption. He's the guy that we've been waiting for. Then there's verse 18. For from his fullness... There is everyone who has come in contact with God wants to see God clearer, wants to experience him more, wants to understand more deeply who is this person. And we saw this totally play out in the story in Exodus, in Exodus 34, when Moses goes, God, can I see you? Because he, he had a relationship with him. He goes, I, 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 as much as I know about you, I still feel far off. I want to see you. And so God goes, well, you can't see me because you're a sinner. That's not going to work. 
but I'm going to show you my backside. I'll show you my goodness. I will tuck you in the cleft of the rock and hide you from my glory and wrath and justice. Shadow of Christ. And then I will remove that to allow you to see my goodness. You can see Moses' response there in Exodus 34. But imagine this. The Son of God contains the fullness of all that God is. And we get to experience him as a friend. This is how Paul describes this fullness. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. John ends his prologue by saying, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. But Jesus Christ, he's made him known to us. As we launch into this narrative over the next, I don't know, weeks, probably, definitely years, I don't know how many years, we get to see the Son of God live, breathe, move, and act on this earth. If you and I lived in Israel at this time, we would be able to walk up and shake his hand, the Son of God, the fullness of who God is. And this person came for one specific purpose. Jesus Christ came for one specific purpose, to accomplish the promise that was set out in Genesis 3.15. The fullness of all of that is found in him. And when he says it is finished at the end of this book, that's what he's talking about. The seed that was planted, it's finished. I'm the Messiah, is what he will declare. As we turn our attention towards communion this morning, it is amazing that we get to stop every week and consider what the Messiah has done for us. When we take these elements, we don't take them in order to fill up something that's lacking in us each week. We take them so that by our senses, by our hands, by our taste buds, by our minds, we can be renewed in the knowledge that we are good, not because we fulfilled anything. The Old Testament teaches one thing, we can't do it. But because the fullness of time, the Son of God came and fulfilled everything that was required of us. And so we can sit here today and take it and be reminded that we are good before God because of his work, not our own. If you're here and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe this is a new story, maybe this is a new first time hearing the gospel, hearing about the seed, hearing about this promise, I would ask that you just let the plate pass you by because we don't want to confuse you with the elements. We don't take them to be saved. We take them to remind ourselves of who Christ is. And if you are that person, 
come find me at the end of service. I would love to share with you again the truth of the gospel and tell you how, how you can place your faith in him. Walk you through that process. Walk you to that moment so that you as well can rest in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray and we'll take this together. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this beautiful picture that we get to look at each week. Thank you that redemption is real. That we can rest in who you are and not rest in who we are. Thank you that we can bring our brokenness and sin and misery and, 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 and fear to you. And you can offer us peace. You can say, all that was required, it's finished. And that we can trust in you and know that through you, we have hope. Father, help us to rest in those truths today. In your name, amen.